Welcome to our service this evening. Thank you for being here. Let's take our hymn books and go to 448, a prayer asking the Lord to open our eyes that we may see. If he does not open our eyes, who can? Only him. prayer. Father, I trust that that is the prayer of each of our hearts tonight, that you would open our eyes, that we might see your truth, open our ears, that we might hear that truth and apply it to our lives. Open our mouths that we might indeed speak that truth and do so in love, as you would also fill our heart with your love. We thank you, Father, that, as Mike indicated, we need your Spirit to open our eyes and our ears and our mouth and our heart. We certainly cannot understand spiritual truth apart from your Spirit that is in us. We certainly cannot hear your Word apart from your Spirit illumining us. And you told the disciples to stay in Jerusalem until the Spirit would come upon them and not to even venture out to try to witness without your Spirit. And help us, Father, not to go out in our own strength and in our own wisdom 
speaking your truth, but to go only in your spirit and filled with your spirit so that we might be effective in our witness and in our testimony. We thank you, Father, for the time that we can come together tonight, and even as we would open your word, that we might see your truth, that we might apply it to our lives. We'd ask, Father, that you would also be with our teens tonight as they are meeting. Give them a, give them a nice time. We, we thank you for each one who's come. We pray, Father, that they would have fun, but most importantly, that they would gain in the knowledge of your truth, that they would gain in the knowledge of you. And those who do not know Christ as their Savior would gain in the knowledge of the gospel, that they would accept that truth and accept Christ as their Savior. We pray for our young kids tonight meeting as well. And they're into their last month for this year as far as uh, that uh, Kids for Truth Club, and we just ask, Father, that in this last month there'd be some who'd come to know Christ as Savior. We thank you for the opportunity that we have to minister to these teens and to these kids, and I pray that they would see in us examples of those who desire to walk with you, those who desire to grow in our knowledge of you, those who, who desire to be faithful to you and to be good stewards of all that you've given to us. May they see that in us, and may they see your love manifested through us. I pray, Father, that uh, we would be that example to them so that they might um, follow that example and that they would truly follow Christ as disciples of him. As we have come together tonight, Father, we do so to bring our requests to you. We're so grateful that you do love us and that you care for us, that your ear is turned to us. But Father, even as we studied on Sunday morning, thank you so much for the interceding work of Christ who's praying for us as well. We thank you for his love. We thank you that he does know our weaknesses and prays accordingly that he has a plan for us that we can fulfill those responsibilities as we surrender to him. And thank you for his prayers as we would fulfill those responsibilities. Thank you, Father, for each one who's here tonight. You know each heart. You know the need. You know the encouragement that they need. You know, Father, that, that we all are, are weak. Again, even as we saw this past Sunday, we are but dust. We are but flesh. That's not an excuse for our sin, and yet we do acknowledge that in humility before you, recognizing that we need your strength and your power. We need to put on the whole armor of God, because without it we cannot stand. We cannot resist the attacks of Satan. So thank you, Father, for giving us that whole armor as we surrender ourselves to you. Again, we thank you for our hour together here tonight. May you be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's continue in prayer. Thank you, Lord, for allowing us to come to you to pray. You have control over time. Time has no control over you. So we speak in human terms when we say you, you always take the time to listen to us. You always um, continue what you're doing in every perfect way, but you have 
the perfect ability in your, your nature, your character, to stop and listen. It's, it's amazing, and, and we thank you that you care in such a way. And when we consider the good fathers that many of us had the privilege of seeing in our lives, um, we know that you are a perfect father, and a perfect father always loves their children perfectly, and we thank you for that. And they, they listen to their children. And I just thank you so much for your, your love as father, your control over us, gracious control as Lord and King, Lord, and as God, just the, the, the perfect one, deity, who is alone worthy of being followed, alone worthy of, of being obeyed, um, alone God above all gods. Thank you for all of this, and we just are so grateful that you have saved us. Thank you for giving us uh, years and years of solid teaching through good men and good women in this church. We pray that that will continue. We know that in scripture, it warns us of people inside or outside that would want to hurt the church according to the devil's schemes. And Lord, you continue to protect us in many ways, but we need to pray for your protection and continue to humbly submit to your will. Help us to cling to your word. Help us to remember important sections that remind us of your word from your word, Psalm 119 and many other places in the Bible that talk about the, the perfection of your word, the, the holiness, and our need to follow. Um, may your word be brought forth clearly tonight with the teens, with the kids, and we are praying for salvations. We are praying that you would work and we would open the eyes of a young child tonight or a teen that has been considering what to do and lord you have a way you just you have your way with them we pray may you save may you may you open their eyes to salvation thank you for that thank you very much for the the outreach that we have the ability to do both inside of our church and the responses to them as well as the outside we we do thank you very much for the, using the prayers from the church for our local police this past month, and we pray that you would save a number of those men on the force. With it being March now, we pray you'd help us to, to be an influence and to pray and to encourage those of the courthouse and uh, the, many, um, the many arms that are part of the, the work down there. Lord, we pray that uh, there would be a sense of your morality, your justice, your righteousness among the, the believers there. And we also pray that uh, for them, that the number that aren't saved will come to know you as Savior. Please help us, Lord, to reach out into our community. Please help us to, to communicate to our, our county seat here in town that we care and that we are a light. You've changed our lives, and we pray the same for them. Lord, we pray that uh, you'd help us to continue to build upon the friendships that we have in this church as it's a brotherhood and sisterhood with one another. We pray that you'd help us to, uh, to love one another and to fellowship with one another, to insist upon putting self aside for the sake of one another, to sacrifice for each other, to serve one another, just as we've seen Christ do for us in every way. Help us to uh, be faithful to those things that matter, to eternal things. 
and help us, Lord, to, when we walk away, we know that uh, there's a, a real sense of a bond here, a bond of love with each other. Help us, Father, in our, our fight against sin. Um, help us to walk in integrity before you. Help us to insist upon um, the standard that you do to be holy as you are holy. Um, help us to be gracious with one another. Uh, help us to extend mercy and peace to each other. May we be faithful to you. We thank you tonight for what we will learn from your word, and may we apply it in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Heavenly Father, as we continue in prayer, we do come before you humbly knowing that we are not worthy to be in your presence except through your son and the blood that he shed on the cross for us. We do thank you for that. We do thank you, Lord, that your Holy Spirit is abiding in us. Help us not to grieve the Spirit, but help us to learn from him and to be guided by him in our every step, every thought, and every intent of our heart. May we turn ourselves totally over to you we thank you that you're all-powerful, all-knowing, that you are also long-suffering. Help us to be seeking to know you more fully in our life, that we may be able to show your love, your grace, and your mercy to those around us. May our relationships be um, worked through with your grace and your truth. May we speak the words that you give us, and may they be um, sweetened with love and salted that they may understand and desire to know you more fully. We do pray for the teens and for young people in the back that you will give those that are working with them wisdom, discernment, that they will have the words to speak we thank you for the seeds that have been planted before. May your Holy Spirit use those seeds to grow the uh, faith that they need to know you, that they may turn their heart and mind over to you and not be led by the things of this world. Give them a desire to stand firmly on your truth and boldly come to you to seek you and your forgiveness as we seek to know you and come to know you and your forgiveness. For there are many opportunities that we should speak or do something and we may not do. Open up our eyes and ears to the opportunities you have set before us. Give us the boldness and guided by your spirit to do what you ask of us. Thank you, Lord, for your grace that you have bestowed upon us as a church family and for the many blessings you have given to us, for the leaders that you have set up and for those that are um, in our congregation that desire to know you more fully or desire to know the needs of others. Use us to be the channels that your love may be shown forth. 
We do pray for this evening's message. Help us to hear and to understand what you have before us. That we may live a life that is pleasing to you and led by faith. We do pray for those in our local governments that they may seek you to do what you want them to do. Work in their hearts. Give them a desire to know you more fully and to be able to apply your word to their lives. Help us to be a testimony of your grace and your mercy and of your love. Thank you for the opportunities that you set before us, that we may use them to show your love to those around us. For we ask it in Jesus' name. I'd ask you to turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 20. Because of the weather last Wednesday, we didn't have a service, so it's been a couple of weeks since we've been together in Ezekiel. So let me just refresh your memory a little bit. In chapter 20, God, through Ezekiel, rehearses Israel's history specifically as it relates to their sin throughout their history and their idolatry throughout their history. He goes all the way back to Egypt and says even when you were in Egypt, you were worshiping idols. And then uh, he says, when I delivered you out of Egypt and you were in the wilderness, you worshiped idols. And then as I brought you into the promised land, the land of Canaan, you accepted some of their gods and their idols and you worshipped the Canaanite gods. And then right up to the present day when Ezekiel was prophesying, God says, even now you are worshipping idols. So he rehearses that history and throughout that rehearsal of history, he said, I, I basically says, I, I showed grace and didn't destroy you then. I could have destroyed you in Egypt. I could have destroyed you in the wilderness. I could have destroyed you in the promised land. I could destroy you now because of your sin and your idolatry, but I haven't. But he says, I am going to bring judgment. And uh, as he says he's going to bring judgment, we come to verse 33 of Ezekiel 20. And he speaks of this uh, judgment that he's going to to bring, and he says, This judgment is for purging and restoration, ultimately. So, again, even though he's bringing judgment, we see his grace. He's not going to destroy them all together. He's going to bring judgment, and certainly they're going to be taken captive, and that had already begun. Jerusalem was going to be destroyed. He'd already prophesied that. But he's not going to destroy his people. There would be a remnant that would be purged and restored. But as you read down through verses 33 through uh, verse uh, 44, we, we recognize that he's talking more than just the current uh, judgment and the current restoration as they go back after 70 years from the captivity in Babylon, but it's yet future because he speaks 
beyond just what is during Ezekiel's day. He looks into even what's future for us. And so I, I'm going to read down through these verses. It's, they're somewhat self-explanatory, but I just want you to see what God's attempting to do, or not attempting to do, what God is going to do, and what is yet future for the nation of Israel. Beginning with verse 33 of chapter 20. As I live, says the Lord God, surely with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm, and with fury poured out, will I rule over you. And I'll bring you out from the peoples, and will gather you out of the countries in which you are scattered, with a mighty hand, and with an outstretched arm, and with fury poured out. And I will bring you into the wilderness of the peoples, and there will I enter into judgment with you face to face. As I entered into judgment with your fathers in the wilderness of the land of Egypt, so will I enter into judgment with you, says the Lord God. He's saying, I'm going to scatter you among the nations, that's my, my judgment on you. Then verse 32, and I will cause you to pass under the rod, and I'll bring you into the bond of the covenant. So I'm going to pass you under the rod. That's the rod of discipline, if you will, the rod of judgment. And then he says, I'm going to bring you into the bond of the covenant. That has to be referring to the new covenant that God had made with Israel and with Judah. And I will purge out from among you the rebels and them that transgress against me. I will bring them forth out of the country where they sojourn, and they shall not enter into the land of Israel, and you shall know that I am the Lord. As for you, O house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, go, serve everyone as idols. And hereafter also, if you will not hearken unto me, but pollute my holy name no more with your gifts and with your idols. For my holy mountain... In the mountain of the height of Israel, says the Lord God, there shall all the house of Israel, all of those in the land, serve me. There will I accept them, and there will I require your offerings and the first fruits of your oblations with all your holy things. I will accept you with your sweet savor when I bring you out from the peoples and gather you out of the countries in which you have been scattered, and I will be sanctified in you before the nations. That's what's yet coming in the future. This is going beyond just the return from the Babylonian captivity. This is going to the tribulation period when God will bring his people back to himself and he will establish his kingdom for the millennial kingdom. This is what this is talking about. Verse 42, And you shall know that I am the Lord when I shall bring you into the land of Israel, into the country for which I lifted up my hand to give it to your fathers. And there shall you remember your ways and all your doings in which you have been defiled. And you shall loathe yourselves in your own sight for all your evils that you have committed. And you shall know that I am the Lord when I have wrought with you for my namesake, not according to your wicked ways, nor according to your corrupt doings, O house of Israel, says the Lord God. Again, we, we read through Ezekiel a lot about judgment and how God's going to judge his people and how he's going to take them captive how he's going to destroy Jerusalem, a lot of judgment. And and sometimes you get this, you've probably heard people say, you know, that God in in the Old Testament, he was just a God of judgment and he was was a mean God. But then in the New Testament, he becomes a real loving God. Well, no, he's the same God. And yes, he brought judgment to Israel, but he was so gracious over and over again. In chapter 20, he says, in Egypt, I could have destroyed you, but I didn't for my namesake and out of my grace. I could have destroyed you in the wilderness. I could have destroyed you in Canaan. I could, have dest- I could destroy you now. But out of his grace and for his namesake, he did not. And, and in the future, he is going to bring his people back to himself. And he will establish his kingdom. And he will establish that new covenant with them. That's all the grace of God. God hasn't changed. He will bring judgment because he's a holy God. And we see that in the New Testament as well. 
but he's also a gracious and loving God. And so he's the same God in the Old and New Testament. But I just wanted to read those verses because that's really looking to the future when God will restore Israel to their land. Do you have any questions or comments about that? Just need to focus on the, on the grace of God as well as the judgment of God as we go through these verses. We'll see it even more as we continue on. As we come to uh, these last few verses in, in chapter 20, uh, really it's, it's, in my estimation anyway, it's, it's a, a, they put the chapter break in the wrong place. Let's put it that way. Chapter 21 should begin with verse 45 of chapter 20. Because as we come to verse 45 of chapter 20, he now talks about judgment, but he compares judgment in verses 45 through 49 of chapter 20, he compares it to a fire. You get down to chapter 21 and verses 1 through 7, he compares it to a sharpened sword. And then you have verses 8 through 17, it's a, a uh, excuse me, in, in verses 1 through 7, it's a, a drawn sword. It's drawn from the sheath. Verses 8 through 17, it's a sharpened sword. And then in verses 18 down through the end of the chapter, it's the Babylonian sword. God is going to use the Babylonians as his sword to bring judgment. And so he, he uses that. And, and just notice uh, those four different sections. They all begin with the words of verse 45 of chapter 20. Moreover, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Verse 1 of chapter 21, and the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, that's the next section. Verse 8 of chapter 21, again, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, that's the next section. Then verse 18, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, so though that, that phrase, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, divides these four sections. The first one being the, the fire, and then the drawn sword, the sharpened sword, and then the Babylonian sword. Verse 45 of chapter 20, moreover the, word of the Lord God, uh, moreover, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, set your face toward the south, and drop your word toward the south, and prophesy against the forest of the Negev, and say to the forest of the Negev, Hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will kindle a fire in you, and it shall devour, devour every green tree in you, and every dry tree. The blazing flame shall not be quenched, and all faces from the south to the north shall be burned in it, and all flesh shall see that I, the Lord, have kindled it. It shall not be quenched. Then said I, ah, Lord God, they say of me, does he not speak parables? God is comparing his coming judgment to fire, and that fire is going to start in the south and just work its way north through Judah. That's his judgment as it starts in the south and just works its way up through the nation of Judah, finalizing with the destruction of Jerusalem. So he compares that judgment to fire. Then we come to verse 21. Now it's the drawn sword. Chapter 21, verse 1, And the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, let your face toward Jerusalem, and set your face toward Jerusalem, and drop your word toward the holy places, and prophesy against the land of Israel, and say to the land of Israel, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am against you, and I will draw forth my sword out of its sheath, and will cut off from you the righteous and the wicked. Seeing then that I will cut off from you the righteous and the wicked, therefore shall my sword go forth out of its sheath against all flesh from the south to the north, that all flesh may know that I, the Lord, have drawn forth my sword out of its sheath, 
and it shall not return anymore. And so he speaks of the coming judgment as a drawn sword. The idea of the drawn sword would just speak to the, the imminency of judgment. You know, once you draw that sword out of its sheath, it's, it's ready for battle. It's ready to be used. And God said, I, I've already drawn the sword. It's not in the sheath anymore. I've drawn the sword. Judgment is imminent. I'm ready to use the sword in judgment. And so that drawn sword speaks of the, the imminency of the judgment. Then we come to verse 8 and we see the, the sharpened sword. Again, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, prophesy and say, Thus says the Lord, say, A sword, a sword is sharpened and also polished. It is sharpened to make a great slaughter. It is polished that it may glitter. Should we then make mirth? It despises the rod of my son like every tree. Um, the sharpened sword, uh, polished so that it glistens. Um, certainly the sharpened sword is also the idea that it's prepared for battle, it's ready, so it speaks of the imminency. But it, I, I think this, the idea of the sharpened sword that's polished and, and glistening, that speaks of the terror of judgment. In fact, in verse 12, Cry and wail, son of man, for it shall be upon my people, it shall be upon the princes of Israel, terrors by reason of the sword shall be upon my people. Smite therefore upon thy thigh. You know, you see that glistening sharpened sword and that would strike terror in your heart. And so I think as, as he speaks of, of this judgment as a sharpened uh, glistening sword, it, it speaks of the terror of judgment. Now verses 8 through 17, <clears throat> it, uh, it's, it's really a song, it's poetry. Um, not Again, in our English translation, that's not so obvious. But in the original, that's really a, a poetry, and it's a song. It's been referred to as, as the poetic psalm of judgment. It's been referred to as the, the song of lamentation. It's been referred to as the, the song of the sword. Uh, various titles have been given to it, but it is poetry, and it seems to be a, a song. It's, uh, the song has three stanzas. The first stanza is verses 8 through 10, which we just read. And that stanza speaks of the, the, uh, the sharpened sword that, again, is, is prepared for battle. Um, it's, it's ready to be used. It's been sharpened, it's been polished, it's ready to be used. And, and so he speaks of that in verses 8 through 10. That's the first stanza. The second stanza is verses uh, 11 through 13, and that speaks of the, the victims of the sword. Notice it. And he has given it to be polished that it may be handled. This sword is sharpened and it is polished to give it into the hand of the slayer. Cry and wail, son of man, for it shall be upon my people. It shall be upon the princes of Israel. Tears by reason of the sword shall be upon my people. Smite therefore upon thy thigh because it is a trial. And what if the sword despise even the rod? It shall be no more, says the Lord God. So it speaks of the victims, my people and the princes of my people. They're the victims of this sword or of this coming judgment. Notice in verse 10 it speaks of the rod. And again in verse uh, uh, 9 it speaks of despising even the rod. Uh, a little bit difficult to know exactly what's being referred to here. Uh, one thought is that, that God had, had used the rod of discipline upon Israel over the years, but they ignored that rod of discipline, so now he needs to bring judgment. Uh, if they had just listened to his rod of discipline, 
then he would not have to bring this, this utter judgment that he's pronouncing now. Others believe that the rod here is referring to the scepter and that he's simply saying that as judgment comes, even the king will not be spared. The one who, who holds the scepter will not be spared in the judgment. And so there's some debate as to what is really meant by the rod here. Um, either one of them is feasible. I'm not going to really necessarily pick one um, because it's really difficult to know exactly. But uh, it's either the rod of discipline that they have neglected or uh, that they have uh, um, not uh, obeyed. And because they have not obeyed that rod of discipline, now he's bringing judgment. Or it's simply saying that, that this rod of judgment is uh, the king will not be spared. And then verses 14 through 17, we have the work of the sword. That third stanza, Therefore, son of man, prophesy and smite your hands together and let the sword be doubled the third time. The sword of the slain, it is the sword of the great men that are slain which enters into their secret chambers. It just uh, talks about doubled the third time. It just says that sword is going to strike two and three times. Um, just kind of the idea that it, it's not going to stop. The judgment's coming and the judgment will reach its conclusion. It's not going to stop. This sword will strike once and twice and three times. And it's even going to enter into their secret chambers. You're not going to be able to hide from the judgment. You can try to hide in your bedroom. You can try to hide in your secret chamber, your hiding place, but you can't hide from the coming judgment. The sword will find you. I've set the point of the sword against all their gates, that their heart may faint and their ruins be multiplied. And it is my bright, and it is made bright, and it is wrapped up for the slaughter. Go one way or another, either on the right hand or on the left, wherever your face is set. In other words, this sword is going to go to the right, it's going to go to the left, it's going to go wherever God sends it, and you'll not be able to hide from it. And so this sword is doing its work. That's this third stanza, the work of the sword. Verse 17, I will also smite my hands together and I will cause my fury to rest. I, the Lord, have said it. I'll cause my fury to rest. He will exercise judgment until his anger is satisfied. It's a righteous anger. It's a holy anger. But it will be satisfied as he brings judgment. So this is, uh, um, again, the, the song of the sword or the the, the, the poem of judgment, whatever you want to call it, it, it is a three-stanza song. Any questions or comments on that? Yes, Tim. Right, right. Uh, are they still rebelling? The question is that uh, Israel was rebelling at the time of Ezekiel, and that's why God's pronouncing this judgment. Are they still rebelling? And the answer is yes. Israel today is still um, really not, they've not come, now certainly there are certain uh, Jewish individuals who have accepted Christ and have accepted their Messiah, but Israel as a nation, I'm not just speaking about the nation geographically, I'm speaking about the nation of Israel scattered around the world. They've not come back to their God. They will, as we read in the last part of chapter 20. They will, but they have not yet. And the, the geographical nation of Israel that's there now began in 1948. Um, 
That has not been a religious restoration of Israel. That's been political, not religious. And when Israel is restored to their God, it's going to, and when they come back from the nations to which they've been scattered, and they come back to Israel, that's going to be a religious uh, return to Israel, not just political. Any other questions? In verse 18, we come to uh, the Babylonian sword. We have the, the fire. We have the, the drawn sword. We have the sharpened and polished sword. And now we have the Babylonian sword. And, and basically, it's just God identifying Babylon as the sword, if you will, that he's going to use to bring judgment upon Israel. It was the Babylonians that took them into captivity. It was the Babylonians that destroyed the city of Jerusalem. It was the Babylonians that destroyed the temple. The word of the Lord came unto me again, saying, verse 18, Also, son of man, mark two ways that the sword of the king of Babylon may come. They too shall come forth out of one land and choose you a place, choose it at the head of the way to the city. Mark a way that the sword may come to Rabbath of the Ammonites and to Judah in Jerusalem the fortified. For the king of Babylon stood at the parting of the way, at the head of the two ways, to use divination. He made his arrows bright, he consulted with images, he looked in the liver. What in the world is that talking about? Basically, if we can just put it this way, as the Babylonians came, led by Nebuchadnezzar the king, speaks of, of Rabbath of Ammon. Ammon and Judah had kind of made a pact with each other. And so Nebuchadnezzar was coming against Judah and Ammon. And the idea here is that he came to a crossroads. If he goes one way, he goes down to Judah in Jerusalem. If he goes the other way, he goes to Rabbath of Ammon. And so who does he attack first? He's going he's gonna to attack both, but who does he attack first? And so it says here that he uses divination. He speaks of uh, uh, made his arrows bright, he consulted with images, he looked in the liver. Three different things that the pagans would do at times to try to determine their God's will. One was uh, the king would, would take two arrows, he'd put the name of Jerusalem on the one arrow, and he'd put the name of Rabbath on the other arrow. He'd put him in the quiver. He'd swing that quiver around. The arrow that fell out first would be the city that he would attack first. That was kind of the practice of trying to decide what do their gods want him to do. And then it speaks here. He consults with images. That is, that he would just uh, worship his idols to seek their god's will and the idolatry that they practiced. And then it speaks here of, of looking at the liver. They actually would take the liver out of a sheep, and as they would look at that liver, the various colorings and the various markings and so forth supposedly would give them their God's will as to determine what their gods wanted them to do. And so that's what it's saying here. Nebuchadnezzar comes to the place where he needs to make a choice. Do I go to Jerusalem first, or do I go to Rabbith first? And, uh, and he goes through these rituals. Obviously, unbeknownst to Nebuchadnezzar, the true one and only true God was in control, and he controls Nebuchadnezzar. The king's heart is in the hand of God like a river, and he controls the heart of Nebuchadnezzar, and he directs him towards Jerusalem first. 
verse 22, at his right hand was the divination for Jerusalem, to appoint captains, to open the mouth in the slaughter, to lift up the voice with shouting, to appoint battering rams against the gates, to cast a siege mound, and to build a fort. And that's what he did. He went to Jerusalem first, and he laid siege to Jerusalem. He built up the, the, the siege mounds and, and uh, basically starved the city out until he was victorious. And it shall be unto them like a false divination in their sight to them that have sworn oaths, but he will call to remembrance the iniquity that they may be taken. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you have made your iniquity to be remembered and that your transgressions are uncovered so that in all your doings your sins do appear because I say you are come to remembrance, you shall be taken with the hand. Again, just because of your sin, I'm bringing the sword of Babylon against you to destroy you. But then we come to verse 25, and again we come to grace. We come to hope. Verse 25, And you, profane, wicked prince of Israel, whose day is come when iniquity shall have an end, thus says the Lord God, Remove the diadem and take off the crown. This shall not be the same. Exalt him that is low and abase him that is high. He's saying here that when the king of Nebuchadnezzar comes to Jerusalem, and he destroys Jerusalem, the king, the one with the crown, the one with the diadem, it was Zedekiah, was the king at that time, he's going to be taken. He's going to be removed as king. And we know as well from Scripture, as well as history, that Nebuchadnezzar took out Zedekiah's eyes and led him back to Babylon and then killed him in, in Babylon. But before he took out his eyes, he killed Zedekiah's sons in front of him. And so uh, the king is removed from being king. But then notice verse 27. I will overturn, overturn, overturn it, and it shall be no more until he comes whose right it is, and I will give it him. Who has the right to be king in Israel? Who has the right to wear the crown and the diadem? It's the coming Messiah. And so verse 27 holds out the hope of the coming Messiah. He's bringing judgment. He has to as a holy, just God. But he's a gracious and loving God, a God of promise. He's made a covenant. He will keep that covenant. He'll keep that promise. He will bring the Messiah. The Messiah will become king. And he will give that crown. He'll give that diadem to the one to whom has the right to have it. None other than the Messiah. So verse 27 is referring to Christ. He's the one that has the right to it. And it will be given to him. He will reign from Jerusalem. There's been no king. And there will be no king until Christ. There's, from Zedekiah until Christ, there's been no king in Israel. Yes, Israel was allowed to go back to their land after 70 years of captivity, but there's been no king in Israel. Zedekiah was removed as king. There's been no king in Israel. And there won't be until Messiah. Verses 28 through 32, and we need to wrap this up. But verses 28 through 32, simply, um, remember he talked about Nebuchadnezzar coming and deciding, do I go to, go to Rabbath of Ammon or do I go to Jerusalem of Judah? And, and God directed him down to Jerusalem, but Ammon's not going to be spared. And so verses uh, uh, 28 through 32 simply say that the king's coming to Ammon as well. 
And Ammon likewise will be destroyed by the Babylonians. And so that's what verses 28 through 32 are, are addressing. The, uh, the attack of the Babylonians against the Ammonites. Do you have any questions, comments? Again, I just remind you, yeah, there's a lot of, a lot of horrible things, a lot of judgment, a lot of uh, things said here, but, but always we find the love and grace of God fulfilling His promises. And we can always hold on to those promises. Let's bow in prayer. Father, we thank you so much again for your word and for your grace and for your promises. And I pray, Father, that we would recognize that you are a God of love, but you are also a God of holiness and justice. And I pray, Father, that we would just, uh, um, as your children, recognize that Christ took the punishment for us. He took the judgment for us. We were the sinners. We deserved that punishment, but Christ was our substitute in our place dying for our sins. And we thank you for that love and that grace and the hope that we have in your promises. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.